Welcome to This Week in Common Sense for the second week of December 2020. This Week in Common Sense is the weekend podcast of Paul Jacob. My name is Timothy Verkula, and we are going to cover the big stories of the week that have appeared on thisiscommonsense.org. Well, this has been quite a week. It sure has. I think there are two quotes that are going through my mind this week. And the first quote is from Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti, who said, it's time to cancel everything. And that's why on, what was it? it was it Monday or Tuesday or one day this week? Uh, we had a script entitled Cancel Freedom, question mark. And, uh, and the other quote is also in that same commentary, Cancel Freedom, at thisiscommonsense.org. But it is, it's the Andy Griffith quote of the year, except it has a little bit more edge to it than even Andy Griffith. We have talked many times about how, you know, every cop should watch, should log a, a hundred hours of the Andy Griffith show and watch Sheriff Taylor putting common sense policing into action on that program before they ever go out on the street and try to police themselves, just in case they are a little bit more like Barney Fife. And, um, and so we're always looking for policemen who you know, kind of exude that, hey, let's, let's try to make sense and all get along. But the uh, Chad Bianco, I believe is his last name, uh, is a sheriff in Riverside County. And after all the lockdown orders from Mayor Garcetti and also from Gavin Newsom, who as governor of California, uh, placed 33 million people under stay-at-home orders where they're not supposed to walk outside. They want to ride their bike around the block. No, they're not supposed to do that unless they're an essential worker going to an essential job. And of course, as we have talked about uh, at thisiscommonsense.org and on this podcast, uh, but we've also had commentaries where we've brought this point out, um, this coronavirus does have a racial component. You know, so often they talk about, oh, it's disproportionately harming, you know, Black Americans or Hispanics or, or what have you. And oftentimes those effects have absolutely nothing to do with someone's race. It has to do with their socioeconomic status. And so they're just kind of trying to play up race, but something else is at work. People who are richer have more opportunities and more choices and more ways to dodge bad happenings oftentimes than people of lesser means. Um, but the coronavirus, it has been found and, you know, it's not proven, you know, there's not, I don't know if there's a scientific consensus around the globe. There's a bunch of studies and a bunch of evidence that there is a correlation between a lack of vitamin D, a vitamin D deficiency, uh, which a lot of people have of all races, uh, and severe effects of the coronavirus, of COVID-19. So <clears throat> the way it breaks out is that a very high percent, I believe it's in the 70s uh, percent of black Americans 
are deficient, either slightly or more so, for vitamin D. Among white Americans, I think it's like 22, 25%, something like that. And the reason being is that the melatonin, is it melatonin? Is that the name? I get that right, Tim? Melanin. Melanin. There it is. See, I got it wrong. That's why you're here. I'm, I'm creating all kinds of opportunities for people. <laughs> I'll continue, I'm sure. Uh, but but uh, the, uh, so it's easier for white folks to absorb the sunshine in through their skin and get the benefit of extra vitamin D. And so it's true for everyone that the idea that you shouldn't walk around the block, especially in sunny California, uh, or ride your bicycle around the block, uh, that's not good health advice. That's bad health advice. And uh, when they're mandating it and saying they're going to arrest you or fine you or punish you in some way if you don't do as you're told, even though no one seems to have any idea or our media never even asks the question, by what authority are you doing all this stuff? And oftentimes these cases, as in Michigan, have gone to the state Supreme Court and the state Supreme Court in Michigan months ago said, no, you don't have the power to do that. And of course, we wrote a commentary. I don't recall the name of it at the moment, but we have a search engine and you put Michigan in. Do you remember what, what commentary that was? You'll have to go further. Well, it's the one where basically after the court said, no, you don't have that authority, the attorney general of Michigan said, well, we're going to continue to enforce these mandates that we don't have the authority to enforce or make. I'm afraid I don't. So I didn't. Yeah. I didn't figure you were going to be able to pull the, I was just, I was, I was tweaking you there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I lost me. <laughs> you got me right when I'm coughing too. That's, a bad, That's bad right. Combination. Stay perk in the end. Um, but uh, so, you know, whether they have the authority is, is one question. The real issue is, what do you think you're going to do? It, it, why do they not go to a policy? I know it's a harsh word for politicians, but a policy of freedom, a policy of informing the public as to the risks as far as they know them. And, and, and let's face it, they don't always know them. And they ought to admit that they, they aren't all powerful and all knowing. But here, this sheriff refused to be part of Governor Newsom or Mayor Garcetti's posse. And this is what he said, quote, the Riverside County Sheriff's Department will not be blackmailed. I have a feeling maybe there were some threats made from the governor's office or the mayor's office, will not be blackmailed, bullied, or used as muscle against Riverside County residents. That is the chief law enforcement guy in Riverside County saying, no, we're not going to be a draconian police force that pushes people around. That's not what we're here for. And boy, is that sweet music to my ears. It's, um, it, it also, it takes me back. I don't know about you, Tim, but um, when I hear not being used as muscle, I think back to the quote that just still rings in my ears of the professor at the University of Missouri, who when they were having some sort of demonstration against the university, 
wanted to kick some student reporter out of that area of the campus because he was asking questions and, and taking pictures and so on and called for some muscle. Here is a professor, I think she was a professor of journalism of some sort, calling for muscle against a reporter. And if people don't know the rest of the story in the end, uh, she was let go of her job. She did face some consequences for that. And, uh, but it's, it's the sort of thing that there are two parts to a free, peaceful, harmonious society. One is people in power not calling for muscle to muzzle us. And the other is for the muscle to say, no thanks, that's not what we do. And here we have the Riverside County Sheriff's Department saying, no thanks, that's not what we do. And I should uh, correct you in the one thing I can correct you on, that was a December 9th Wednesday piece called Cancel Freedom. Oh, Wednesday piece. Well, I, you must have put it in the wrong day, Tim. I don't know what to say. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, we're going we're gonna to continue to face this. Uh, it's interesting, I just on today um, heard on the radio that my governor in Virginia, Governor Northam, uh, old blackface himself, uh, decided that we have a curfew starting at midnight. And I heard him say from his own lips, unless somebody, somebody fixed the, video, the audio somehow, that nothing good happens after midnight. You know, kind of like he's our parent, but he's not our parent. He works for us. And my parents made it very clear that they did not work for us. Uh, and, and my wife then told me that she read, there's no enforcement mechanism. Well, that's very nice. But by golly, a governor telling us, this has nothing to do with COVID-19. It's not as if COVID-19 comes out at midnight and mugs you or something. This is, this is, it's beyond paternalism. This has really gotten to be any, any order they want to throw out there, they're going to throw out there. And it's not helping. I have so many friends who have said, you know, well, uh, maybe we do need these because some people aren't following these mandates. Well, that people aren't following the mandates isn't an argument for the mandates working or to make them more draconian. Some people are not going to follow them. There are ways in a free society, if businesses say, hey, you can't come in, then people are going to put a mask on probably. If different things happen, people are going to react. Let that take place. Let's not have a top-down society. It, it doesn't help even in a pandemic, but the idea that we have people in power who think if there's a pandemic or if there's a flood or if there's this or that, that the Constitution and all our rights get thrown out the window, these are the wrong people to have in office at any time, especially in a pandemic. Yeah, you get the idea that these uh, governors have taken the COVID crisis as an excuse to put the bully back in the bully pulpit. I mean, they're, they're really serious this time. It's not just <clears throat> spouting what they want to say. They, just, they, they actually tell us what they want us to do. Well, and, and in some cases, I think they are reacting. I think uh, Governor Whitmer in Michigan has been pretty popular throughout this. There are a large number of people who are highly concerned about this. I mean, the, frankly, I traveled for Thanksgiving. 
uh, I tried to travel as carefully as I could. I don't want to get uh, COVID-19. I'm trying to do everything I can to avoid it within reason. I think I still have to live my life. And, you know, I, I could have avoided that trip. I told my mother, who's 85, that I was going to be there for Thanksgiving. And I decided I was going to keep my word to my mom. I was going to be there for Thanksgiving. And I don't know. I mean, she's, she may be around for another 15 years, or she may not be around for days. You just, you don't know in life. And I think that that's my decision to struggle with. Um, and not that, not that I've struggled a whole lot, but I told my mom I was going to be there for Thanksgiving. And by golly, I was going to be there for Thanksgiving. No struggle. But however much somebody does have to struggle with what they're going to do or not do, let them do that freely. And if they do anything to violate your rights in the process, then you've got every reason to step up and say, hey, wait a second. But otherwise, no, you don't. And, um, you know, something I've wanted to do a commentary on uh, that I haven't is all of this about people dying from COVID-19 alone. And I had a very dear friend of mine. Uh, we're, we're taping this Friday. It will be shown on Saturday or, or, you know, the audio will be on the website on Saturday, but who passed away today. Um, and I know when I think of someday that I might pass away, I know that's, you know, hopefully a long time away. But I know that what I would want is for my kids and my wife to be there, but especially my kids, because I want to know they're going to live on and that the world will continue and so on. And it's very sad. Uh, this is a friend of mine I went to school with. He's my age, way too young. But his kids were with him in the hospital in Little Rock, Arkansas. And I think that that may, may, makes a difference to me. I feel better knowing that, that they were there for him because I know how much that means to him. So meant to him. And, uh, and dying is part of life. And this idea that with COVID that you know, what you're going to get is not to be able to hold that person's hand, but a, a Skype call or a Zoom call. Um, and some people may decide that's what they want. They're concerned. They're, they're compromised health-wise, and that's the choice they make. Well, then more power to you. But other people know they're going to want to be there. And I think about my wife being sick in the hospital. And, and I've said this before on this podcast. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be there. You're going to have to physically stop me from being there. That's the commitment I made. And it's very important to me in my life that that commitment be kept. And it's more important than risking my life. More important that that commitment be kept. And, and, and so the way we die matters. And, and again, it's our choice. If the way you die doesn't matter or, or whatever, if you have a different view, then, then bully for you. Do it the way you want to do it. Uh, but I think that that is starting to open up just because I've heard of different people in the hospital being able to visit. Uh, they haven't been COVID uh, cases, so maybe that's still different. Um, 
but that's going to change. And it's unlikely. I mean, I think one of the things that this is a recurring theme at thisiscommonsense.org and in this uh, podcast this week on Common Sense, the recurring theme is that the people who are in charge politically, who, you know, we pretend or don't pretend, but oftentimes we hear work for us, they are not going to fix these problems. Their reaction is to, is to do things like this, to shut everything down, to tell us we can't go to the hospital. And look, I'm not saying that they're terrible, evil people. Um, maybe they're trying to help us in every way that they can, but they have to respect us enough to do that through persuasion. Unless we're aggressing against somebody else, unless we're using force or fraud against people, as long as we are dealing with people honestly and fairly, we get to live our lives as we want. And if we don't, if we don't have that sort of control, then we are going to live in a society when the, where the first time something happens out of the ordinary, we don't have, we don't have our rights. Where we are in a pandemic and people think that they can just tell us, no, we're going to have to let our loved ones die alone. No, they're not going to die alone. My loved ones are not going to die alone. And that goes for, you know, well, I think, I think that's clear. But it's true about all kinds of issues. It's true about why, why the Supreme Court doesn't get fixed. It doesn't get fixed because we don't seem to have a way to fix it. And we're the only ones who care about it being fixed. The, the political folks, they might want to pack it. Uh, they certainly haven't done anything to protect the Supreme Court from one partisan, you know, mob or the other. So, uh, and I, I just pick that out of the air. There's a zillion different issues. It's the problem with everything. We don't have real representation in government. And that's a difficult thing. Even when you have some semblance of representation, government's not always going to work perfectly. But we, we have basically zero. We seem to, there are 80, 20 issues I'm a broken record on term limits. And I'll tell folks, uh, it's not online anywhere, but I wrote this article, Will They Ever Leave? It's in the December issue of Newsmax. The cover story written by me, I, I've been moved to like term limits. No, I've always loved term limits. Um, but this is an issue that's an 80-20 issue, and we all know why it, it isn't already enshrined in the Constitution. It doesn't have anything with the about the people not wanting it. It's that the people who supposedly work for us and represent us, it doesn't work for them. And we all know it doesn't work for them. But let's, let's realize until term limits are in effect at the national level, we have a national government that works for itself, not for us. When push comes to shove, they work for them, not for us. And you know, everybody knows it. I don't think I'm saying anything crazy, but I think it's important sometimes that we say these things again and again so that we don't forget, so that we can't pretend that somehow we live in this representative democracy. We live in, in a, you know, a pretend representative democracy, and it's up to us to, to stop the pretension. And as one of my themes is, is that uh, one of the reasons they get away with this is because we have a media that's, so you might say, is, is misrepresentative of reality. 
Yes. And uh, your piece on Monday, maybe next year, was about the time person of the year. And you wrote that before the person of the year came out. Yes. And boy, we should, we should, for one, in, in, time has an opportunity here and, and they're rapidly losing it just in the same way that the Nobel Peace Prize used to be a way you could give some effort attention. I remember when the women in Northern Ireland, one Protestant, one Catholic, uh, who were working across, you know, those religious lines for peace, got the Nobel Peace Prize. That mattered. It, it raised a, something important to public attention. And it rewarded people who don't tend to get any other reward. You know, when you give it to Obama because he got elected or something, and, and you know, he's still <laughs> drone striking people all over the world, and it's silly it becomes a silly award. And uh, we live in such silly times that almost every honor like this has become ridiculous. It's almost like if you get it, it means you don't deserve it. Whoever they would pick would be the last person that had anything to do with peace or where Times Person of the Year. Uh, in, in 2013, uh, they gave it to Pope Francis. And they gave it to Pope Francis because they like his politics. Um, and you had e Edward Snowden, who could have gotten the award that year, and who, and, and they don't judge good or bad. They've given the award to Hitler. They've given the award to Stalin twice. Uh, they gave the award in 1970, uh, the award. I, sh I shouldn't call it an award. It's not an award. It's naming the person of the year, but the person who had the biggest impact. and. And probably the biggest impact is Xi Jinping, who's the suicidal or suicidal genocidal. I wish he was suicidal, uh, the genocidal leader of uh, of uh, the Communist Party of China, and therefore 1.5 billion people in China. But um, I argued in this piece, do something good with it. Don't pick. They could have picked the healthcare workers or essential workers, and that'd be nice and so on, except it's it's just so amorphous. Who are you really saying? And, you know, it's kind of too feel good. And it's not a person, it's a whole bunch of people. I mean, we could give it to everybody every year and, you know, but it wouldn't have much impact. Don't give it to Xi Jinping. Give it to the Taiwanese president, Chai Ing-wen, and, if you're gonna, I mean, this, what, what was the story this year? It was COVID-19, it was the pandemic. Well, who did the best against the pandemic? Well, it's not even close. Taiwan, where there's all kinds of contact with China, has like, you know, I don't know if they have 200 cases yet. I mean, it's, it's just, they had almost no problem. They dealt with it very, very well, from testing to contact tracing, uh, to just, you know, having, part of it is, they have a population that tended to trust the things that their leaders were saying because there's a certain amount of respect going back and forth. That's kind of a nice thing. But she deserves credit for that. And it'd be a way to recognize whether China wants to consider them an independent country or not. It is a piece of ground that people live on and spend their lives in a free and democratic society 
where they have accomplished tremendous things and not tremendous things in the way of stomping on people's rights. And so it, what, a, what a wonderful message that would have been. Anyway, I, I knew they weren't going to do that, of course, because time's a little bit American-centric, maybe. Um, not that they haven't picked world leaders. Say in 1979, uh, after the Iranian hostage uh, hostages were taken, <laughs> they picked uh, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini. So, um, you know, we had him staring at us uh, off the cover of time. But... Instead, they have oftentimes picked a, a, you know, the, a recently elected president. Whoever wins the presidential campaign oftentimes has gotten picked. Donald Trump was person of the year uh, because of, of his victory in 2016. And, uh, and Biden could have been that person this year. Although only 3%, and this may have changed in, in late vote counting, who knows, who knows how many fraudulent votes there were in, the, in time, uh, they picked. But they did allow people to vote and, and influence them, maybe. Well, Joe Biden got 3% of the votes when I looked at it. He had 3%. Fauci had the most votes. And I pointed out in this piece, maybe next year, where I complained that I didn't get the award. Uh, not an award. I just should have been named. Anyway, uh, Fauci had the most votes. And of course, Fauci is as responsible as anybody. If you think there was a poor response to the coronavirus in the U.S., this is a guy who's in, been in charge of that part of our government for almost 40 years. So, you know, it seems to me that's the last guy in the world who should get it, and he didn't get it. In the end, they picked Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris. Oh, <laughs> if right now there's no punishment for that. In, in, in the future, I could be hauled away if, I, if I'd screw that up again. And knowing me, I screw up names all the time, so I will. Um, write me, please. Uh, that I think is really interesting because I think there's a feeling, I don't think I'm alone in this, that Joe Biden's not likely to make it through a full term. He's already talked about not running for a second term, and of course he'd be 80 years old. So uh, I don't, you know, I think that's a good idea for him not to run for a second term. But frankly, I don't think he'll serve out a full one term. And I could be wrong. I don't have any crystal ball. I'm just thinking that we're likely to see a President Harris. And so maybe that was part of the, of the feeling here. And of course, during the campaign, there were different you know, hits on them that they weren't sure who was the, whose administration at one point, Harris had said a Harris administration or something. And Biden, half the time in his, in his stump speeches from his basement, was talking about being elected U.S. Senator. So anyway, it, it, it's, we live in strange times. And this is the first time ever that a vice president has been named person of the year, but it's the first time ever uh, that a president, vice president elect team uh, has been chosen as persons of the year. And interestingly enough, uh, some people might say, wait a second, president-elect, come on, let the legal stuff play out. Well, it's Friday night, late, and uh, today the Supreme Court rejected uh, Texas's lawsuit 
And so that looks like it stopped. Um, we have not, uh, well, we, we did write a little bit about, uh, you know, some of the conspiracies this, you know, this week, but we'll wait to get into that. Uh, I'll just say that on the election, I think that there were tremendous irregularities. You almost don't want to call them irregularities because irregularities shouldn't happen regularly or they aren't really irregularities. But there, there is a tendency for election law not to be well-known, not to be very tight. Um, and I think that the Trump campaign can point to all kinds of things that have happened that shouldn't have happened. There were different laws passed in states that required a constitutional amendment where there was no constitutional amendment or where that required a law and it was just a decision by the Secretary of State or the governor. There were problems. But the problem with those problems in terms of how, you, how Trump would, would somehow overturn this election is that they're not specific, they're not rectifiable in a clean, easy way. And I knew going in, courts are very reluctant and, and say it's because they're weenies and they, you know, they don't want to take the heat. But I think there's also some common sense to it, too, that you, you don't want to throw out a lot of votes. You can't go, oh, well, and you could. You could say, I think, um, that they didn't follow the law in this state and therefore we're going to throw out all their votes. But I'm not sure that's the, that's the right remedy. Um, and, and I can tell you in reality, courts are not going to do that and they're not doing it in this case. And it, it argues, I think, for us to begin to fix the election process that no one's paid much attention to. Some people have alleged fraud. Others have acted like there's no fraud. There is fraud. And there's more importantly and more, more appropriate for this situation, there's lawlessness. And we're seeing it in the pandemic where they think they have all these powers they don't have. That's lawlessness. When a sitting governor makes a decision to change the law, well, he's not the legislature, that's lawlessness. And that's really, I think, the biggest problem in this election. And what we have to do because we can't always bank on the courts coming in or somebody raising the right lawsuit at the right time to prevent bad things from happening is to tighten up the process. And I think we have to go away from six weeks. We wrote a commentary when in, in Virginia, there were six weeks of early voting. Now you don't have people voting even with the same information. A lot can change in six weeks. And of course, the other issue about that is, well, you vote too early, you won't be there for the October surprise. And there was an October surprise this time that the media decided we didn't need to hear about. And that's something that, uh, you know, we now have a media that actively keeps information away from us. That's a problem. And that's not a problem you can go to court and fix. We can't, we can't overturn an election because the media mis, misreported. That's, it's their right to hide information from us, and they are fully asserting that right. 
So we, we have all kinds. Of, I mean, when you think of some of these problems, these are bedrock foundational problems, and we've got to get a handle on them. On Tuesday, you wrote a piece called Wolves Checks Balances, which is kind of about procedures. Again, uh, we're talking about uh, how to think about the constitutionality and the legitimacy of direct democracy within the Republican context. Uh, do you want to begin talking about that, or do you want to talk about the typo? No, <laughs> I don't really have to talk too much about the typo, although I don't think I, I uh, ever got back to... Uh, uh, we corrected the typo, but I didn't uh, do an official apology. I've been busy this week, and I meant to go to the website and officially apologize. But we initially had, I don't know how I got in my head that, but I'm writing this thing about Alan Thomas's piece, and somehow I got in my head to write Alan West. And since the whole piece was about this person, a, a lot of times you'll kind of double check things and go, well, I think you had this off, you know, when I make some stupid mistake. But who's going to check that the guy's name is something totally different? It's Alan Thomas. It's not Alan West. Um, and anyway, but he wrote a piece. Uh, and so we apologize, not just to Alan Thomas or Alan West. or So someone had written in and said, you should apologize to Alan West because he didn't write this ridiculous stuff. And, and of course, I apologize to both uh, for having the mistake. It's corrected. So if you go to thisiscommonsense.org, and check into Wolves Checks and Balances, uh, you will see the correct name, Alan Thomas. But Mr. Thomas is way, way off. And, you know, it's not like everybody in America, you know, he's a, a young guy, relatively, for us old, old farts, and, um, and not super well known. So why elevate what he had to say? Well, one reason is because a lot of people think this way. A lot of people that I agree with on certain issues, they have this idea of a republic and not a democracy. And that's true. That is really, it's really important to know the difference. Uh, although most people who talk about democracy understand that. They're not talking about we should vote on everything. They believe in certain rights being written into a constitution, which is what we have. But oftentimes when people want to argue against initiative and referendum, what's called direct democracy, where voters can take a petition and refer a law that the legislature passed to the ballot box, that's called a referendum, or they can come up with their own thing. Maybe it's something like term limits. And they, uh, they write it up and they get the petition signatures, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, over a million, depending on the state and they put it on the ballot and we vote on it. And sometimes when the people who lose these votes look at it, they think, well, that's not right. Somehow they were just able to pass this thing that, boy, if it had been in the legislature, the legislature could have blocked it. We could have somehow blocked it. And that somehow the, the democracy that's used when we vote directly on an issue is too much democracy. But the same democracy that we use to vote for the candidates who are running for the legislature, that's okay somehow. And then when they get elected by the same people and go off to the Capitol and make a decision, including a decision to veto what the people would have voted for directly, that that's a republic. And that's a good, that's a good thing. 
And the good thing about a republic is that if at the ballot box through direct democracy, through initiative and referendum, or in a legislature by democratically elected representatives, there is a law passed that violates our rights, we have the right to go to court and challenge that law, and we have a, a system of judicial review that is supposed to then strike down that unconstitutional law, no matter how many individual citizens voted for it or how many legislators voted for it. It's the same thing either way. But in reality, I will submit this, in the real world of politics, very few statutes passed by the legislature are challenged and even fewer are overturned because the courts tend to give all kinds of deference to what legislators do. And this is especially true, I think, in the federal courts where they're, they're sometimes hostile to initiative and referendum, and it's actually it's even, they're less hostile than the state courts are to it. Um, but when they deal with initiatives, which have been very public, and which, because they're so public, at, attract attention, and people think, well, uh, maybe I'll challenge that, because I really don't like how that vote went. I think the courts are much more sympathetic to overturning laws passed by the voters through direct democracy than they are the laws passed by the legislature. And I, I've never really known anybody who would argue the other side of that. I think, I think if you look at them, you know, so many more laws passed by legislatures than passed at the ballot box through voters. In fact, even the vast majority of measures on the ballot that voters vote on directly are put there by legislatures, not through citizen petitions. So this idea that somehow democracy has run amok uh, is, is incorrect. I was gonna say silly, but I'll just say incorrect. The other part of it is this attitude that we need to somehow write the rules so that we win even when we're in the minority, that when we see that the public is over here, and I know if you're listening to this on audio, you're wondering, what if, where are you pointing? Anyway, but it, no matter where the public is, that we can just, we don't really have to convince them to agree with us. We don't have to change their minds. We just need to change the system somehow so that whatever hold we have in the legislature can't be usurped by the actual people who that legislature is supposed to work for. That's kind of oftentimes the way they talk about it on the right. On the left, when they lose an election, it's because we don't have enough democracy. We need to change six or eight or 10 rules. And sometimes the, the rule changes make sense. Sometimes they don't make any sense. Um, you know, I'm not for 16-year-olds voting. I don't think that that's a smart way to go about it. But, but the, the left tends to push that, you know, it wasn't real democracy if we didn't win. And the right tends to say democracy is a terrible thing if we didn't win. The bottom line is we have to convince our friends and neighbors to get on the same page enough that government doesn't roll over us. And, and so... You know, I don't want any initiative ever passed that violates anyone's rights. I want a court system that stops it, and I think we have one that largely stops it. Certainly stops it for anything that it would, you know, there, there's nothing that the courts are allowing us to do through direct democracy that they wouldn't allow legislatures to pass. 
And oftentimes we hear about, oh, they passed a minimum wage increase. And I think the minimum wage is, is a mistaken policy. But of course, they pass them in legislatures all the time. It's, it, it isn't the initiative process that somehow allowed those to pass. So I, I think we have, to, we have to have a certain amount of confidence in our fellow man, or, or really we ought to do something else with our time. Because politics and government, you're not going to change it, even if you're changing it to a point where it has much, much less power, unless you're willing to, to engage with your fellow man, you're not going to be successful. And so let's not give up on the electorate. There's a, a piece, and I, I probably have to put my glasses on because it's a little dark in here to see. But he makes the, the point here where he says that, uh, um, where is it? I'm mean, gonna find uh, He who, uh, Alan Thomas or somebody? This is Alan Thomas. Oh, he says, progressives are much better at it. They're much better at initiative and referendum. And I, I don't know that's that that, the case, actually. I don't think it's the case either. I, you know, they win some, conservatives win some, libertarians win a lot. In yeah, fact, we'll get to that in a second. Probably better than any other area that libertarians engage in. Absolutely. Um, uh, as as uh, Ila Salmon uh, pointed out in his piece in at Cato, but I want to say what else he said here. He says progressives are better at it, as if conservatives couldn't get better. You know, they'll catch up then. Uh, but he also says we also cannot count on the Colorado populace to think more reasonably. We can't count on Coloradans to ever think more reasonably than they do at this moment. I, I think, I think, uh, boy, I think I'd give up. Does he bring up uh, the uh, Tabor business that's been a big part of Colorado politics since the 90s? Yes, he doesn't. He doesn't mention anything. That well, that's bizarre, state. isn't it? It is at the same ballot where he's complaining afterwards that, though the left knows how to do everything. The truth is they protected Tabor. There was an effort to undercut Tabor again. And Tabor is the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, where in Colorado, government is on something of a citizen-led diet. They cannot raise taxes without a vote of the people. But they also cannot spend more than, they can't increase spending year to year more than the population increases plus the rate of inflation, unless they ask the voters to spend more. If more money comes in, instead of sending it back to the voters, we'd like to spend it on education. That's, that's what they'll say. And then they'll take it out of education, put it somewhere else. But, um, but okay, that's a wonderful system in which the, the public is engaged and of course the powers that be hate it with a passion. They've gone after it numerous times. And yet here's Colorado, which has become something of a blue state. The incumbent Republican senator got beat pretty handily. Trump campaign wasn't even there, wasn't close. And of course, you know, years ago, Colorado, Colorado was often voting Republican. Um, and yet the electorate, if, if we would have left that decision to the legislature, as Alan Thomas wants us to, first of all, we'd never have Tabor because they never passed in a million years. That was passed at the ballot box through initiative but also they would do away with it in a heartbeat. And yet they can't get rid of it 
They've, they've nipped at different pieces from time to time, but they can't get rid of it because they have to go to the voters. So this Democratic check is important, and it's a conservative check in that way. It's a libertarian check. It's a good government check in my mind, but it's in a very blue state where the legislature, there is no way in Hades that the legislature would do the same thing. Well, you know, that's such a great place to stop for the uh, podcast. We're an hour in. We've given the people quite a bit, and we've radically thought in times past that we could actually skip as many as two or even three episodes of Common Sense. People can, after all, go to thisiscommonsense.org. So do you think my proposal makes any sense, or are we going to plow through to the end? I consider it a uh, friendly amendment, and uh, and I, I was actually thinking that these last two uh, the two conspiracies unearthed, which is uh, kind of a, a, a favorite subject uh, we, we talk about, uh, about UFOs and the fact that, that our government has kind of come out and, and said, hey, we hadn't been telling you the truth for decades. And there's been a surprising lack of attention on it. Um, and then also the story about the fact that the there's a professor in China who has said, and he's on, he's on video saying that they have high level people in the U.S. government and basically cheering the election of Biden because they couldn't deal with Trump, but now they should be back in in business. Uh, could be complete disinformation, as we point out in the in the commentary, or could be true. Uh, or somewhere in between, but very, very interesting, uh, and and certainly, um, you know, it's it's uh, Nancy Pelosi this week uh, because, of course, Eric Stalwell, the congressman from California, was also found out. <laughs> We're just going to mention these. Yeah, good, good try, Jim. Anyway, Swalwell, okay. Swalwell, not yeah. Stalwell. Oh, that's right. That's right. Uh, anyway, he has had a relationship for, or had a relationship for some time with a woman in California who is believed to be a CCP spy, Chinese Communist Party, and, uh, and was pushing and helping raise money for him. And he, of course, was serving on the Intelligence Committee in the House when the FBI came to him and said, hey, there's some bad stuff going on here. Um, anyway, it's interesting in defending him, Nancy Pelosi this week said she has been in, in Congress for 37 years or something fighting against the communists in China. And I thought, my goodness, well, her fight against them didn't really seem to get going until Donald Trump was president. It's funny the way that works, because all those other years, China seemed to be able to steal anything they wanted from the U.S. And, and you'd almost think this professor in China who was saying they had high-level people in the government, maybe he was on to something, the way our policy seemed to just embrace uh, a world where communist China was uh, spreading their wonderful totalitarianism far and wide. Um, so anyway, that, that's an interesting uh, commentary. There are links to other uh, information on both of those stories. And I think the UFO story, you know, when you first mentioned it uh, to me, uh, Tim, you had kind of said, I don't know that you want to touch this. 
And I've always thought, I'm, I'm not into, you know, UFOs in any big way. I've, I've always kind of thought space was interesting and so on. But I am interested in how government provides information to the public, how transparent government is, how honest government is. And the UFO story is horrifying just in those ways, much less trying to figure out what's, what's behind it all and what the government actually knows or doesn't know and what reality is regarding UFOs. Well, there we are. Uh, we end with UFOs. <laughs> we may actually end with UFOs in a bigger sense too. I don't know. I know nothing. <laughs> you heard it here first. If all life is extinguished on the planet, I want full credit for bringing it to you first. No, we should. We should mention that most ufologists believe that the worst thing that aliens might try to do to us is replace us bit by bit using genetic technology. I just thought I should mention that. <laughs> <laughs> and see if they can beat us to it. Yeah, yeah. We're almost through with this 2020. It has been uh, one crazy year. And I'm going to make a prediction that next year is going to be a lot like this year, especially if we don't do something very different. Um, and I think we're going to have a funnier president. Even funnier, because I think that there's nothing quite like making fun of somebody who doesn't know what he's doing. So Yes. Yeah. And there was that element in Trump, we have to admit. I mean, Trump didn't know exactly what he was doing. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, the truth is, uh, we've, we've had that a lot. Uh, it's just oftentimes the media plays along. Yeah. Okay, um, I guess we'll wrap it up and uh, instructably go to thisiscommonsense.org and, uh, and I can... Uh, Maybe get to sleep before midnight. Good. Well, that was This Week in Common Sense, where Paul talked about four of the five commentary he wrote on thisiscommonsense.org this week. The fifth one was Sign of the Times, and you can find it at thisiscommonsense.org. And in honor of that missing piece, I've titled this whole podcast, Sign O the Times. My name is Timothy Verkula. I help Paul with these podcasts. And uh, you can find me at workman.com. And that Workman on social media. That's Workman with an I, not an O. And you should always come back to thisiscommonsense.org to find Paul's podcasts, vlogs, special videos, and of course commentary every day of the week.